the year 2001. You are on your way to a space station on routine business. You have been traveling less than an hour and have remembered to call your office. Now you transmit your thoughts across space electronically. You receive your answer transmitted directly to the built-in television screen in your case. This is but one example of what life will be like in the year 2001. Welcome to voice print identification. 2001. A space policy. Open the pod bay door. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. This is the year 2022. We've passed the point of the first two novels. We're not yet to the rest of the series, but we will definitely be talking about what we have coming up in our own future that is inspired by these movies. And we're going to be talking to some folks who have been inspired by these movies to get involved in some of this technology. My co-host here. I come here strictly as a, a fan of the film and having had multiple stages of this introduced to my life from very early on when it was purely just a sci-fi spectacle and then going on to be one of my favorite Kubrick pieces and having watched it again has brought even more insight to things that are happening in the space industry today and what could potentially be on our doorstep tomorrow. This is Wes's area of expertise. There's no one I know who's more well-informed in a variety of the sciences, but when we get into astronomy, rocket engineering, we're really speaking this man's language, and he's going to be, be speaking the language of the, the guests that we're talking. I'm Brad Eastridge. I'm a filmmaker and composer, working for about 15 years. Started off uh, as an intern at RSA and Scott Free. Um, got to work uh, for Ridley and Tony Scott and worship at the doorstep of that particular brand of filmmaking. I never thought of space. Hmm. I saw Stanley Kubrick do something, and that opened the door. And Mr. Scott, I've read about this. You're in the theater by yourself, middle of the day, about a week after it comes out, back when you could yeah. still smoke in the movie theater. What was it about that film that really just got at you? I was a great admirer of everything Stanley had done, so I was obsessed with what he'd done anyway. And I happened to be working with a new job. I figured that no one would notice I wouldn't be there. And I knew that 2001 was just pulling up the road. So I nipped out the back, went up, sat in the best seat in the house. It was empty in the first week. And I watched a 70 mil print of 2001. Went through a whole pack of cigarettes. It was fantastic. <laughs> the reason I think I got involved in film is because of Stanley Kubrick. I think he's the most important filmmaker that we've ever had. Well, the thing about Stanley is I think that he's a filmmaker's filmmaker. I mean, I think he's one of those guys that if you start studying film, you start learning about film and try to make film, you begin to look at his work and you just stand in awe. The best in history. Nobody could shoot a movie better than Stanley Kubrick in history. Kubrick's eye was faultless. And, and it's all about the eye, that film. The craft is impeccable. Every film he's ever made, the craft is impeccable. The lighting, the dolly shots, there's the compositions. I mean, the exact compositions. You had to hit your mark precisely to please Stanley so he'd get his painting, the painting he was putting on canvas for you. It's as though his reputation hangs on every take or every shot. And so you, 
he never lets down. I think that the factor that made everything convincing in 2001 was extreme quality control exerted by Stanley Kubrick himself. The art, the production design, costumes, the photography, the photography is going to be big, religious and, and social, philosophical implications. There's a myriad of ways that this movie has inspired everything that has come beyond it. And we're going to be taking a deep look into not only the things that uh, it inspired, but also the things that inspired this film, including uh, sci-fi work, art, the work of Joseph Campbell in The Hero's Journey, for example, and some of the short films uh, made in Canada that were also a big influence on the style, depending on how much we find is of interest. And how much you find us of interest is going to be a big part of that. Listener feedback is... It's is, going to be huge. Yeah, and as yeah. we cover these topics, I'm sure every listener is going to want to interject, potentially having some kind of insight, query, enigma, whatever. We would love to hear everything that you're thinking. Those deep, impermeable values that this, this movie has uh, embedded in its code. It's an ever-flowing font. You can't go too deep. You can't run dry, which is one reason why we chose this <laughs> subject for a podcast. And also because it needed to be done, and we couldn't believe that nobody had done it yet. Just a deep-dive podcast into this film specifically, because there's so many films and film series... Especially that, in the sci-fi genre. Especially, that have been so inspired by this movie that have, rightfully so... A number of great podcasts, many of which we're inspired by ourselves to, to get into this. also want to say we're going to be referencing in this podcast a lot the book Space Odyssey by Michael Benson, which just came out for the 50th anniversary. It's a fabulous read. It reads like a novel. We were discussing it before we started recording in the sense that the stakes, how risky this proposition is, and it's really spellbinding because you really do get a sense of of what the odds are against actually creating this thing. We're also Real life references yes. to the physics of the actual movie and essentially comparing it to the technology we currently have and what they accomplished in the film. And uh, what's really beautiful about it is a lot of these sci-fi movies almost predicted the future in the way that they interpreted how spacecraft work and how anti-gravity works before a lot of these... Um, you know, civilians in the, in the most part had never experienced because back then, really the only people that were doing any kind of special descents, even in the what they call the quote-unquote vomit comet, uh, which, which allows people to experience that anti-gravity flight, it is almost non-existent at that point and to be able to shoot a film that uh, shows very, uh, almost realistically, the, the physics of a human being and what's a, essentially a very technologically advanced tin can floating through deep space. That image is so much of what has inspired the work of, of every astrophysicist who saw the movie, which is pretty much every astrophysicist. Science fiction films that came before it were all physically crude. The model work in, in 2001, the, the spaceships, were, were light years ahead of what anybody had done you know, previously. Spacecraft in science fiction films prior to 2001 were generally smooth and shiny and very sleek looking. You either had your flying saucers, which were pretty much based on, I think, something that somebody saw in 1947 in the desert and said it was a saucer. The ships in 2001 resembled more of what you would see at NASA at the time. They were designed by engineers, not by people in a Hollywood 
prop shop. Two of these men, space scientists Fred Ordway and Harry Lange, formerly of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and both active in space vehicle construction, are Stanley Kubrick's principal astronautic advisors. We've been brought in here by Stanley Kubrick to uh, more or less ensure the scientific integrity of the film, to make sure that it's uh, uh, very, very close in reality to uh, what we're doing today in, in the spaceflight program. And naturally, we're looking forward uh, 35 years, but still, we want to make certain that it has a base of reality. There were five or six of us teenagers sitting in the first row of the balcony and several adults seated below in an empty house at midnight. None of us knew anything about what we were going to see, although I knew it was Kubrick's newest movie and that it was science fiction. I was already a Kubrick fan. In the language of the time, we had our minds blown. It was extraordinary. To see somebody actually do it, to make a visual film, was hugely inspirational to me. If he did it, I can do it. Any time a Stanley Kubrick film came out, me and most of my friends were always the first in line to go see it. You know, I remember very clearly the first day I saw 2001, it was opening day. The theater was really cold. And so when we were in space in the whole second half of the movie, I felt like I was on board the spaceship. I had no idea about the kind of trip I was going to go on. And I went on one of the greatest trips of my life. Shivers went up and down my spine. I mean, now that is the kind of phrase that critics shouldn't use because it sounds so corny. But I, I want to say shivers went up and down my spine. They really did. When was the first time that you remember seeing them? I was very young, and I remember um, I had a very uh, heavy influence from my father. And that was pretty much a, he was a big sci-fi buff. He was a big Ridley Scott fan, um, big Spielberg junkie. And, and obviously he was the one that introduced me um, to, to the Star Wars series and, and everything that I've come to love. But the first time I saw it, I, I know I couldn't have been more than, um, you know, seven or eight years old. And just, uh, I remember uh, maybe not getting the, the, the bold plot lines, but just experiencing it was, was such a um, cinematic kind of a, a exposition of what space travel was really like. And, you know, I grew up in the era of things like Apollo 13, uh, where we've got the almost non-fictional fiction of, of what real space travel is like. And to counterpoint that with Armageddon and <laughs> Deep Impact. Totally. And, and actually seeing how like these films so long ago um, really did have like a more grounded grasp of, of, of um, inter-solar um, travel. What we are doing in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, is showing some of the things that will develop in the world of the future as a result of our present first steps into space. Approaching is a spaceship of the year 2001. Its aerodynamic design will allow it to pass through the Earth's atmosphere and into space. Its objective is to reach an orbiting space station some 200 miles above the Earth's atmosphere. Once on the moon, pod-shaped vehicles of very light construction will be used for transportation. Dinner and a movie. That was it for me. I don't know if you remember on cable, TBS dinner. And, and they would show you how to cook a delicious meal. Exactly. And they would pair it. 
It was brilliant. It was it alchemy like. It was, and <laughs> and so was their chemistry. They had a nice kind of very '90s sort of uh, urban coffee house uh, sexual tension going on there, and they would do. These, it was the set of Friends, essentially. Basically, yeah, and with the brick walls and everything, you know, <laughs> and the neon for sure. And my bet, I think that's the one thing that I do remember is those two titles: "Was You Only Live Twice" with um, Black Cherry Bon Bonds. Mm-hmm which is a good pun. And then they had, oh yeah, Fast Times at, at Ridgemont, Ridgemont High with Sean Penne Pasta. Ooh. Yeah, so that pun always Sean Penne Pasta. Yeah, pun. <laughs> I was really hyped up there advertising all day. I'm like, yeah, I want to see this movie. You know, I knew that it had inspired Star Wars. I was probably 11, maybe 10, but I'd, I'd never actually seen it, but we had the album and the soundtrack album has this beautiful fold and is... This incredible concept painting of the moon base, and it's just staring at those images and some of the photographs that were on the disc. It just evokes like a frontier spirit, totally, and made me dream. And then I finally, I was watching it on four by three, and you know the pan and scan on cable with commercials, with little bits cut probably for time. But I was still transfixed. The only thing I wanted was more. I mean, I wanted the explanation. But I also just wanted more of that. Well, we're going to get into especially things like dialogue. Some of these things that were left unsaid that were up into... Absolutely. ...viewer's interpretation. This was a film that was imprinted on the consciousness of everyone who saw it and forced them to talk about it and, more importantly, to think about it. All of us had hours of putting our feet up on somebody's couch and going, okay, what did this mean and what is this really? I mean, it's one of the most thought-provoking movies ever made. Every viewer has to make up their own mind about what the film is about. They have to make their own connections. It is much better to, to leave the end of 2001 and the whole story, in fact, as it stands, unexplained, as a bow to the unknowable. It is so chock full of symbology that was so far above my head at the time and that's how you came to love not just sci-fi but film in general um, these nuances speak bounds as um, anyone that has been familiarized with the film will know very little dialogue lots of orchestral exposition and a lot of time for you to really take in what's happening my first time viewing it, everything seemed to go a lot faster than it really does. And you don't get to uh, enjoy the film until you really sit and live in it. That first time, it seems to be a lot faster. You're taking it all in for the first time. You're processing everything. Yeah. And I think in the commentary for the original Star Wars, George Lucas says that one of the reasons that people seemed to think that the original movie is a lot slower now than they did at the time was because not only had nobody seen anything like that before at the time, but nobody had seen anything like that before for two hours straight while they're trying to figure out a story that starts in the middle and <laughs> learn who all these characters are who are all dressed in ridiculous things from outer space. Which so it's become kind of a, a normal thing. Yeah, now it's normalized and you accept all those things and you're just thinking about the story and it moves along uh, leisurely. But at the time, yeah, certainly. Who? What are these robots doing? Why are we on a desert planet? No one has even talked to me about what's going totally. on. That's uh, without words. You know, mm-hmm. the, the beginning of 2001 tells such a powerful tale of 
um, evolution and the, the beginning of, of modern man and, and how that affected our current outcome. And we'd love to take a look at pre-lithic archaeology and, and what you know the monolith is really inspired by because yeah. that's been something repeated in history ever since we were able to, to form any kind of stone statues mm-hmm. or, or foundations or anything like that. Could be a, a representation, almost like the ziggurat the pyramids, the the step, you know, altars in South America. Maybe. I read at one point that the design was going to be a pyramid, and that they decided that was a little too on the nose, mm. and that in order to build one, it wouldn't look quite as alien looking as just the mystery the single form. Yes, yeah. not to mention the ratio of the measurements of that form, which turned out to have a very symbolic and important scientific meaning too. Um, and you better believe there will be a side segment on our uh, most recent monolith that has been spotted. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and has also disappeared uh, yes. quite mysteriously. So if the artist is listening to this podcast, <laughs> you know how to get in touch with us. Oh, hello, Dr. Hello, Hello, you're looking great. Thank you. It's nice to have you back. As far as credit is concerned, Michael Benson's book, there's a great BBC documentary, and there's some great documentaries that are done by Gary Leva. It's Leva or Leva, I'm not sure how you say it, but he did them all for the DVD and Blu-rays. That's um, a carryover from the DVD of the extras. Four great little documentaries. Plus he put together a commentary with Keir DeLay and Gary Lockwood, the two astronaut stars of the movie. So with all of that material, we're going to reference that material. You know, we're not going to be taking any insights and stealing them as our own. And we want to thank these people for... For doing this, we are purely digesting research totally. and uh, having a little bit of fun along the way. We do intend to have a little bit of fun, which is why we've hired a professional clown who's been waiting in the wings the whole time practicing balloon animals. But I'm not sure if he's ready. Yeah, they're not. Are the cup are the cup West are the cupcakes still in the oven? Oh dear Lord! Where's my shorts? <laughs> Where's the bathroom? Buck, should I get it? Doctor Strange Love. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Well, I was interested in uh, whether or not I was going to get blown up by an H bomb, you know. <laughs> I vaguely remember that, you know, if there was a nuclear attack, the best thing to do was hide under your desk or wear a tinfoil hat. He was terrified like everybody was. The Doomsday Machine. Metal. Metal before the 40s that has been either in the ocean for long periods of time Mm -hmm. or in a stone encased tomb Mm -hmm. or some kind of chamber is worth so much more than the archaeological value or even its intrinsic metal value. Because it's before we fired off multiple high-load nuclear weapons into our atmosphere. So everything, every body is coated in this decaying nuclear isotope. And the reason why this metal is so valuable is because it is completely unaffected by these nuclear isotopes. And they can use it in... Geiger counters, mass spectrometry relays, detecting dark matter. You know how they just discovered 
the the waves or whatever those detectors that they use that are buried in caverns mm-hmm. flooded with water they include uh this non-nucleid metal it's worth it's worth way more than gold it is highly sought after and if you can find it and prize it from an archaeologist. Because <laughs> they're nice. like, this is a piece of history. But they're also like, we could build a hundred Geiger counters out of this. And eventually we're not going to be able to. We're going to run out. Can you imagine not, not being able to like handheld detect nuclear? Because we've flooded the world with so much nuclear material. I'd never heard that in my life. No. So they were wanting to bring up the Titanic. And they were like, no. They were going to pump. I can't even remember how many metric tons. They were going to build a frame around it, like a a canvas around that, and then pump it full of nitrogen and lift it, excavate it. (laughs) So wait a minute. If, if, If this isotope is coating everything and it's in the atmosphere all the time, then won't it just coat it the moment they pull it up? No. No. They won't have to just cut off a little piece at a time. It's, it's reacting. It's been reacting with our surface level materials for so long. But really, if the Titanic sits above ground for 50 years in a warehouse or in a shipyard waiting to be cut into They'll probably put it in like a lead box, honestly. Okay. Like just a black box situation. Hmm. I've never heard anything like that no. in my life. <laughs> And they're talking about archaeological finds, you know. Oh, my God. The, the detection. And <clears throat> I think I told you a little about the muons, which is a particle that I wasn't even really familiar with until recently. And it's part of quantum physics. But much like the solar particles that are constantly moving through the Earth and through our bodies... I think um, Brian Cox said you can hold your thumb up and in the space of your thumbnail, there's like a million of these particles mm. flowing through them. Uh, but muons are much the same. They pass through, they can pass through ground and everything. I think um, void mm. is what causes them to stop. So what they did was they put all these detectors inside of the Great Pyramid of Giza. It took them years to even get the permits. And even then, the Egyptologists, they're they're so close-minded and so cloistered, their knowledge of the actual pyramids. They're like, okay, you guys can come in and do this experiment, but you're going to have to prove that it works first. So they took it to another tomb. They planted all these detectors, and after a month, I think it takes like a a month or two for it to pull the correct Mm -hmm. amount of data, but they were able to 3D model a whole crypt off of these muon detectors. So they let them go in the Great Pyramid of Giza, and they detected a gigantic upper chamber that hasn't even been explored yet. It it, It has not been explored yet. And they think that it's the true great chamber. Because you know how they have like the big chamber yeah. for the audience or whatever? Yeah. It's that size. Really? It's a giant void in the upper chamber of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And the only way they were able to find this is through those muon detectors. Incredible. Yeah. It's a quantum particle. It's quantum, baby. Constantly flying through all of us. 
but you need these very specific and rare, rare earth materials. I imagine that will eventually become what we grew up hearing as long-range scanners. And, yes. <laughs> you know, they can already do that with um, infrared and like, spectral geology, where they fly the, the planes overhead and they just pummel it with lasers. And the return basically tells you the chemical makeup of the ground and they can see way more than yeah. naked eye aerial. Eureka! Has anybody actually exclaimed Eureka? Have we been lied to our whole life? That's possible. Ye gads, which I guess is a, a form of ye gods. Ah. Huh. At least that's what I always figured, but I don't know. Greek. Eureka. I've found it. Repeat, I've found them. It means I've found it. Ah! Eureka! It means That's so much it means. more. Said to be uttered by the one and only Archimedes. Real. Aha! Aha! He hit upon a method of determining the purity of gold. Ah! Well, I was reading about that just the other day. Yeah, because it's something to do with him being slaughtered by the invading armies. And he either he wouldn't leave or he wouldn't burn his stuff or wouldn't smash his Works. writings. Yeah, and then he died and while he was dying he was writing out like equations. Or maybe he was writing something. Maybe he was writing his to-do list, you know. Grocery like, list. Yeah. Embalming fluid. Embalming fluid. The recipe for embalming fluid. Speaking of Egypt, I remember in high school doing a whole thing where we had to do skin on mummification. So I did my sketch in front of the powder that I used, which was flour. And I had a little sign that says self rising natron. Fist bump. <laughs> I'm guessing you all didn't mummify hot dogs. No, but actually I think the cafeteria staff did pretty much every Friday and then served those <clears throat> 10 years later. We um, most certainly did and created sarcophagi and death masks for them. So the sarcophagus being the bun and then the no bun being the dog. Oh, okay. All on the wiener. We had a wiener. And then we stapled the death mask onto it. Yeah. And then we had a container for the sarcophagus and we packed it with salt. That's brilliant. And they stayed in our homeroom for a year. Wow. And then we dug them out at the end of the year. And then you ate them? One, one dude did, in <laughs> fact, yes, eat his hot dog. Not the, hot, not the whole one, but he tried. Did have his name on it, like the, specifically the well, one we that you all, put in? Well, no, we all made you our all own. all put in your own. Yeah, there, you there, were like, there were like so eight individualized. 18 hot dogs in the back of the classroom and salt yeah, that for was a, a year. Yeah, that was the song by Raffi. That was an interesting class. I think that was the same class that we raised a, a mealworm uh, to beetle stage. This is great. This is like survivalist kids training this is for for the apocalypse to salt your own meat for preservation to dig up in the yard a year later yeah. and how to raise your own mealworms for protein this yeah. is great and I, I think we also had tadpoles in an aquarium awesome that turned into frogs Frog from clavia space this is brad this is wes signing off thank you 
Bye-bye. Bye-bye.